If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the second chapter of the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. It's page 708 in the church Bibles, 708. In just a second or two, we're going to begin reading in verse 18. As many of you know, we've been working verse by verse through Mark's Gospel. And here we are this morning on verse 18. So we're going to read and then we'll get started here and pray and ask God for his help. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskin. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskin will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskin. Amen. Let's bow together. Let's seek the help that we need from God. Father, we thank you for the grace you have given us today to gather together in this way. We have sung your praise. We have called on your name in prayer. And now our Bibles are open. Our hearts are expectant. Our minds and our bodies, they belong to you. And so, Father, in your mercy, please help us. Help us to look away from ourselves and through the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, help us to see Jesus, to understand him, to believe him, and and to enjoy him and to enjoy the gospel and to enjoy what you have put before us this morning. In Christ's name, we ask these things. Amen. When a person considers the Jesus of the Bible, which is the Jesus of history, which is Jesus actual, very quickly a person is going to realize that he was not an establishment figure. And the fact that he may be regarded as such today, especially by the different establishment groups which say um, with a kind of self-given authority, they are the group that Jesus speaks with, those kinds of notions are challenged by the teaching of the Bible itself as it reveals to us the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, along with his followers, spent the lion's share of their earthly ministry in discussion and indeed in conflict with the religious establishment of their day. And when you read the Gospels, it becomes very, very clear that the message of the cross, the call to repentance, uh, the expansion of the kingdom, the need to believe on Jesus alone as God's only way to salvation, acceptance, and righteousness, that was challenged continuously, very forcibly, by all of the man-made traditions of the religious leaders and, and the religious establishment of that day. That is why, in times past, Jesus was called, and I say rightly so, Christ the Controversialist. In fact, in 1971, John Stott wrote a book with just that title, Christ the Controversialist, and he begins a chapter in the book by saying this, the popular image of Christ as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, simply will not do. It is a false image. 
to be sure he was full of love, full of compassion and tenderness, but he was also uninhibited in exposing error, denouncing sin, especially the sins of hypocrisy and self-righteousness. Christ was a controversialist, and the gospel record revealed this. Now, that is not to say that Jesus was one of those guys that was always looking for an argument. That is another thing altogether, and personally, I do not like that kind of way, because as we'll see in a moment, that is much the way of the Pharisee. But it is to say, whenever gospel truth was being invaded or questioned, Jesus was there to defend. And in that way, and in that way alone, he was a controversialist. Now, if you're paying attention to our day and our current social climate, so now as then, there are all kinds of establishment groups who say, God is with us, Jesus is on our side, we are the ones. It could be right, left, center, conservative, progressive, liberal, traditional, contemporary. We are the ones who have it all right and and Jesus is with us. But then you actually read your Bible and you find Jesus Christ did not come to earth to prop up any man-made social or political movement, and he certainly didn't come to prop up any religious establishment group. No. When you read the Bible, what do you find? You find Christ moving up and down the high street and the low street and the city and the country, coastal regions, flatlands, and what does he say? What is his message? I am the resurrection. I am the life. The one who believes in me will live forever past death with God, right? Consequently, and this is fundamental to this section in Mark, what Jesus was dealing with here was not only the morality of the people, the the establishment who questioned him, but he was mostly dealing here with the theology of the establishment, those who questioned him. And you see, Jesus Christ and his preaching gave a description of, of God to these kinds of people, which revealed to them by their very belief and their very behavior, they were opposing God. Now, mindful, their behavior was very, very religious. But by their belief and by their behavior, they were opposing God. And think through that. Religious, but opposing God. Subsequently, Jesus in his preaching said, this is how God is to be known, and this is how sins can be forgiven. In fact, this is the only way God can be known, and this is the only provision that God makes for forgiveness of sin. And, of course, the, the one way, Jesus would say, it is all through me. An organized religion of that day and our day who say, you know what, if you just give us enough people, you just give us enough money, you just give us enough time, we, we can fix this. Those kinds of people, they cannot stand the, the message that Jesus gives. So, so I hope you know this. I hope you know that this world as we have it will never be fixed. Never. We may be granted seasons of reprieve. We may, we may be given, please God, seasons of revival. But the world is broken. The world is broken. We are broken. And that's why the gospel is key. C.S. Lewis, all that we call human history, right? All of human history is that long, terrible story of humanity trying to find something other than Christ, which will make them happy. And if you doubt any of this, I want you to consider the fact, if your Bible's open, that we're not even finished with the second chapter of Mark 
And Jesus Christ, occasion after occasion, uh, the Son of God, the embodiment of truth, His words, His deeds, repeatedly being challenged by the religious establishment of His day. Chapter 2, verse 7. Why does this fellow talk like this? No one can forgive sins but God, right? Who does he think he is? Does he think he can forgive sins of people and give people a fresh start and give them a brand new beginning like it never happened? Just like that, really? Chapter 2, verse 16, if your Bible is open. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because he's going to get dirty. He's going to get unclean. The sinners are going to make him sinful. Jesus would say, well, who am I supposed to eat with? I'm a doctor. I get together with sick people. My people are like doctors, and they get together with sick people. We're not there yet, but in verse 23, it's the same thing with the Sabbath. You're doing it wrong, Jesus. You're doing it wrong. And of course, this morning, the question is fasting. Three points, pretty simple. Number one, the question. You'll see this if your Bible's open. Verse 18, John's disciples fast. Check. The Pharisees fast. Mark says, some people, which Luke's gospel would tell us is also the Pharisees. They asked Jesus this question. Why are your followers not fasting? Okay? So, John's group, very religious, very committed, very serious group, fasting. Our group, Pharisees, very serious, very committed, Fasting, your group, not fasting. What's going on? In other words, right, wait a minute. Serious religious people don't behave that way, Jesus. No, no, no. And so here we go, right? Because it's, it's the great mechanisms of our day. Religious people don't eat at sinners' houses. Religious people don't go to sinner parties. Religious people would never step into a place like that. Religious people don't let their kids dress like that. Religious people don't listen to that. Religious people don't spend their money like that. Religious people don't, would never drive a car like that. When religious people would never live in a house like that. Uh, religious people would never wear that. Religious people would never vote like that. And on and on and on as if those were the great issues of time and eternity. Here the question is fasting. First of all, then, what is fasting? Well, simply put, fasting is go without food for a period of time. Fasting in the Old Testament became associated with times of great sorrow, great repentance, or contrition. It was self-effacing. It was self-humiliation and self-denial. You were looking away from yourself and looking to God when you fasted. However, fasting was actually only required once a year in the law of Moses, your Old Testament, during the Day of Atonement. And in every biblical account, and this goes without saying, but it still needs to be said, true fasting is always linked with prayer. You can pray without fasting, but you can never fast biblically without praying. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 said, when you fast, indicating that fasting is normal and acceptable in the Christian life, but it's never commanded in the Christian life, not in the New Testament. So Jesus doesn't give us a command, he doesn't give us a particular time, and he certainly doesn't give us a particular method. And the reason why that is the case, because the legitimacy of the Day of Atonement ceased when Jesus Christ made that once and for all sacrifice on the cross, which means, as you would suspect, at that point, the single prescribed command from God to fast on the Day of Atonement, that ceased to exist. Now, stay with me. In our day, oftentimes fasting is presented to us in a way is, okay, if you fast long enough and good enough, then you're going to be able to get some superpowers from God. 
You'll get some religious superpowers from God, or you'll get God to do something for you, right? So you don't eat for a while, and you'd be really sincere, and hey, hey, there you go. You're going to get what you want from God, making the precious gift of fasting all about us, when the focus is to be completely on God. John MacArthur on this writes, Fasting is never shown in Scripture to be the means to heighten spiritual experience to visions or special insight or awareness as many mystics, including some Christian mystics, claim. Now, you, Which means we don't need to fall foul of the kind of Madison Avenue approach to fasting or that dreadful beast, uh, the commercialization of Christianity idea of fasting, right? So someone writes a blog, someone writes a book, and on, on the cover of the book, of course, is... The lovely lady in stretchy pants with a bottle of water. The handsome man, you know, built like Superman with a bottle of water. And then the the title, Fasting the Way to uh, the New You. Right? I googled this book. There's a book called The Fasting Edge. Recapturing your dream. Recapturing your this. Recapturing your that. And so there you go. You're multitasking. You can lose a few pounds. get, Get your intestines all cleaned up. Get a superpower from God, get a spiritual high, and you will stand out. Holy cow, will you stand out as if the gospel somehow left us short and the gifts of the Spirit left us short. That is not fasting. Fasting is we don't eat for a period of time. We choose. We choose because it's not commanded in order that we will humble ourselves before God. Contrite. Submit to His will and deny the self, so that all of our attention will be directed towards God, right? And remember what Jesus said. You keep it all to yourself, right? You don't sound like Darth Vader, right? <sighs> I've fasted for three hours. I've missed breakfast. It's all going down. I'm dizzy, and, I, and, and oh, God, I want every, you know. No, just keep it to yourself and clean yourself up. Make yourself all shiny so no one will know. That's fasting. Now, what is happening here? Well, the fasting which is taking place here in the text comes from two groups. Group one, you'll see this if your Bible is open, the disciples of John the Baptist. Why were they fasting? Well, we're not told, are we? It could be because uh, John was in prison. It was no time for eating and drinking, right? More than likely at this time, he was in prison. It could be that since John had a kind of, you know, bohemian lifestyle and a really strange diet, that his followers followed suit and kind of enhanced it with fasting. It could be that they were fasting because John's message was what? It was one of repentance. Jesus is coming. Got to get ready for Jesus. Repent. And so they were mourning over their sins. Still, we are told that all they were, all we know, excuse me, is that they were fasting. Okay, that was John's disciples. The other group, the Pharisees, were fasting simply because that was one of their mechanisms of righteousness and acceptance before God. So they would fast twice a week, typically Monday and Thursday. Now think of that, two full days to build their case for their own acceptance with God and to establish their own righteousness uh, before God. But of course, the message of the gospel, the message that Jesus was proclaiming was that any attempt, now listen carefully, any attempt to make ourselves acceptable before God is a worthless endeavor. Now imagine all those Mondays and Thursdays wasted, looked religious, looked like, wow, that's something. 
wasted because they were attempting to make themselves acceptable for God by their works. And so the question comes down to this. This is why they asked the question. The people were looking around, the disciples of John, religious, fasting. They were looking around, the disciples of the Pharisees, religious, fasting. And then they look and see the disciples of Jesus. And what were they doing? Well, verse 15, 16, they were at a party. They were partying. Partying with sinners. So the people go, hey, you know, what's, what's going on here? Religious people don't do that. John's followers aren't doing that. Uh, the religious establishment of the day, they're not doing that. But Jesus, your followers are doing that. You're choosing the easy way out, Jesus. You must not really, really care like we really, really care. Because if a person is going to be accepted by God, there are so many things that they're going to have to do. And, and we, the Pharisees, uh, the, the, the guardians of organized religion, we know what you should be doing, and you guys are not doing it, and we would like to know why. We would like to know why, and that's the question. But let's just take a moment to think about this. The Pharisees were legalists. Okay, what is a legalist? Well, this means they were of the mind that they could put themselves in a right standing with God as a result of what they did. And, and here's the part for us. They could move up the ladder with God's approval if they could just keep getting better and they could keep doing more. And then, and they would never say this publicly, if they could keep getting better and keep doing more, then God would have to bless them automatically. So remember we said a few weeks ago, they thought God will only act on behalf of the righteous. They thought that God will only bless good people. So, so you be good, making the very good that they were doing all self serving enter jesus christ who was saying you can't ever put yourself on a right standing with god as a result of what you do he was saying it's not what you do but what i'm about to do i'm about to make atonement for sin on the cross that's the only way a person could be put right and stay right with god which means and here we are again every other attempt to make ourselves right with God, no matter how sincere we are, every other attempt to make ourselves right with God, increase our standing with God, is a useless, a useless endeavor. But it doesn't stop people from trying, does it? But it is a useless endeavor. And there's nothing which angers a legalist more than when people don't follow their ways. And as a result of that, at least three things happen. Thing number one, we're going to find this out in a moment or later on, not in a moment, but in a few weeks. They want to kill Jesus. That's the mind of a legalist. They want him out of the picture because they're not doing what they say he should be doing. Two, this comes from Luke chapter 18, verse 9. This is the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Okay, so how do we know uh, there's nothing more which angers a legalist than not doing what they say to do to follow their ways? Luke chapter 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, right? To count them nothing, okay? Legalist behavior to those who, follow, who don't follow their ways. One, they become confident of their own righteousness, which means humility and sympathy and empathy towards sinners is out the door. That's one. And so, two, they find it very, very easy to look down on everybody else. Okay? Confident in their own righteousness. 
they find it easy to look down on everyone else, right? It's like, Martha, why don't they behave like we behave? Why can't they do what we're doing? Looking down on everyone else. And so you remember the rest of the story. Superman prays. Oh, God, I am on it. Confidence. His confidence lies with what he doesn't do and what he is doing. God, I don't steal and I don't kiss other men's wives. Not like the tax collector. And I do tithe and I do fast a bunch twice a week. I'm a double faster, right? I'm a great tither and I'm a double faster. Okay, stop. Who told you to fast twice a week? Not God. So why are you using your own standard as a judgment on that tax collector? See how easy it is? We said this earlier, Leviticus chapter 16, relating to the Day of Atonement. That was the one day of the year which God's people were commanded to fast. Now, does fasting occur in other places? Absolutely. But it was always the individual call. It wasn't commanded. So I want you to see the issue here is not really fasting. It's just a mechanism. The issue is, is if they keep doing the things that they say are right, legalists, meticulously, then God would look, he would have to look on them with favor. Hence the question, why are you not fasting, Jesus and your followers? Okay, number two, the answer. You can see it there, verse 19. Jesus' answer, very disarming, right? How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? In other words, Jesus says, would you ever really fast at a wedding? Does that make any sense at all? Would you fast at a wedding party? Of course not. I told the first service, one of my favorite memories as a kid is one of my brothers was getting married. They had this awesome buffet, buffet. Two of my favorite foods was on the buffet, one of which was egg rolls. My dad pulled me to the side. He goes, look, Joe, just be good at the wedding. If you're good at the wedding, you can eat all you want. I don't care how much you eat. Eat all you want. So I was really good at the wedding, and I piled my plate high with spring rolls, right? Cool and the gang was playing in the background, not the actual group, but the music. And I was just eating those, you know, little glutton. That's what I was on that day. But my metabolism was just putting that food away. I ate like a king at, at a wedding party. Wouldn't it have been strange if someone came up to me and my plate was empty and I was like, I'm fasting. Wouldn't it be equally strange if they were serving like crackers and water at a wedding? Yeah, it would have been. And that is what Jesus is saying. So let me ask you this. Would you expect the paralytic of chapter 2 who was forgiven and healed, would you expect them to fast? Of course not. Would you expect Levi who was saved by grace sins forgiven, burden taken away, tied to the hip with Jesus. Would you expect him to fast? Of course not. In other words, now listen carefully. People who follow me, says Jesus, find that life, even with all its difficulties, is like a wedding feast where the wedding guests are so thrilled for and with the bridegroom that they celebrate, they eat. Hence, no fasting. No fasting. Again, can you imagine not having Christmas dinner on Christmas Day? Right? Are you kidding me? Loved ones, fasting doesn't express the principal feeling of the Christian. The principal feeling of the Christian, saved by grace, is joy, is celebration, it is thanks to God. So let me ask you this question. Let me ask myself this question. Is that how our non-Christian friends would describe us? 
Right? If our non-Christian friends came up here and they had to describe us, what would they say? They would say something like, well, listen, they're very committed. They're always doing religious stuff. They give God due diligence. But you know, they, they always seem kind of grumpy. They, are, they worry a lot. They seem to be ticked off at the slightest thing. Nothing's ever right. They're kind of grumpy. In fact, they're kind of mean. And by the way, if you think about it, wouldn't you hate to be a child that had to grow up in the home of a Pharisee, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're not doing it that way, you're not doing it our way, and you can't eat today, Monday, Thursday. Like, holy cow. Please forgive me. The potential for like mental health issues could come out of a household like that. So have we learned to enjoy Jesus Christ like a guest at a wedding party? That is what's happening here. Have we learned to enjoy Jesus Christ, to lock ourselves into the kingdom and unlock ourselves from all that takes place in the world. Now, you probably understand Jesus is the bridegroom. And he says, right, there, verse 19, there's no way my disciples are going to be fasting while I'm here with them. That won't be happening. But then verse 20 comes along, right? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And then it says, on that day, right? That day, singular. That day they will fast. Now what happens here is sometimes people might take this as an obligation. And so they say, okay, the party's over. Jesus is back in heaven. We need to get serious. Life stinks and start fasting. Obligation. Some people take this as pointing to a specific situation. And so on that day, is what historically many Christians would understand that day as Good Friday, the day of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and who among them would be able to eat on that day. Remember, this is specific to the disciples he's talking to now. But some take this as simply an observation, because in Luke's gospel it says, in those days. And so some say what Jesus is saying is this, when you have reason for sorrow, when you have reason for disappointment, then on that day, Fasting may be correct, but it's not commanded, but it may be correct, but not while Jesus is with you. No, while Jesus is with you, it is, by way of principle, it is party time. Now, loved ones, the more I read the Gospels, the more I see this. Christ is always with us. He's always inside of us. He's behind us. He's in front of us. It's wonderful. He's, He's with us now. He's in us if we're in Christ now. And so here, maybe Maybe Luke chapter 15, the story there in the beginning would help you, and I'll commend that to you. You can read it for homework. But the story goes like this. It begins with tax collectors and sinners. They're gathering around Jesus Christ, and they want to hear him. So you have unrighteous people, so-called unrighteous people. You have the down-and-outers, the burnouts, those just like neck-deep in sin, and they want to hear what Jesus has to say. Here come the Pharisees. Here come those confident in their own righteousness who look down on everybody else. And they were muttering, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. In other words, how could Jesus be the Christ if he was doing all that stuff? No, if he was the Christ, he'd be keeping all our rules. He'd be fasting a whole lot more. He'd have all his ducks in a row. And he would be far, far away from all these, quote, unclean sinners. So what does Jesus do? And you can read this for yourself. He goes, guys, let me tell you a story. There was this one lost sheep, and there were 99 sheep that were super safe. The good shepherd went for the lost one. He finds him, and what happens is when he finds him, essentially they throw a party, a celebration. Now, loved ones, that is God's temperament towards sinners. He doesn't avoid them. He reaches out 
to them. He's keen on going out to look for sinners. He's not hiding out. In other words, right? Jesus is here with us now. And Jesus might be saying, I'm so glad that you're here and, and I'm so glad you're listening to that ordinary man behind the box because I want you to get this deep inside of you. How are you going to stand before me on that day? And how are you standing before me right now? Are you standing before me now on the basis of your own goodness or on the infinite goodness and righteousness of Jesus Christ? That's the issue here. Fasting is just a mechanism in the discussion. In fact, I will be so disappointed if you leave here saying, you know what, I need to fast a lot more. Totally disappointed. I'll be glad if you leave here going, you know what, we're going to have a huge meal today. Because being a Christian is so great. Being found in Christ is so great. I'm so happy that my eternity and that my right now is framed in his righteousness. Safe in his hands. And because of that, I am loading up the plate. And I'm going to eat. In my case, like I did back in the day. Now listen carefully. In our flesh, we like the idea of earning our acceptance before God. Because it puts us in a better light. Our flesh does not like the idea that the worst, most miserable, lying, cheating, disdainful, immoral person who is in Christ covered over in his righteousness, accepted, redeemed, restored, justified, and repentant about their sins, all because of Jesus Christ and no other. They are in equal standing with every other Christian on the face of this planet. (laughs) That's the cross. That message then will prick the belly of a Pharisee, and that message will prick the belly of establishment religion. And that makes Jesus and the message of the cross so, like, wonderful for those found in him and so controversial for those who don't like what he says and what he did. Now, over the past few months, I have fallen in love with a song. The song, the title is Not In Me, and I love it because it's a great, great Christian hymn about the gospel, and I'm just going to I'm going to read to you just one or two verses because this is the gospel. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, No lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by Him, and He alone can give me rest. And you see, that is the meaning of what Jesus is saying in the patch of cloth and the wineskin. Do you see it there? You don't cut up a new shirt to make patches for an old one, do you? It won't work. It, It will shrink And it will tear, right? You don't put new wine in old wineskin. Why not? Well, the fermentation process of the new wine will just burst and break the old wineskin. In other words, this is what Jesus is saying. The life he came to bring is such that it cannot be contained or contaminated by any man-made religion or any man-made work. 
free forgiveness, grace cannot be contained even if just one rule is needed to set us right with God. Again, free forgiveness, grace cannot be contained even if it's just one rule that we have to keep to set us right with God. The the life-changing, liberating message of Jesus is that the unmerited favor of God, grace, free forgiveness cannot be stitched into, cannot be poured into any uh, established religion or any kind of um, hybrid gospel because it'll tear, it'll burst, it'll be useless. In other words, there is no hybrid gospel. There is just one gospel and it must be all grace. It must be all grace and if it's not, then it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. So we thank God then that we're not Pharisees. Okay, but just in case, a Pharisee would believe that a good God will reward good people for doing their best. Get that? A good God will reward good people for doing their best, which means this, all the things they would do for God. All of it, all, just think, all the religious exercises that they would do for God means God will owe them something right here and now and in the future, which is part of the reason why they would do so much for God. So now it's not about total love for God. Now it's self-serving. Because I want something. I'm happy with providence. I'm happy with sovereignty. And that begs the question, doesn't it? Why in the Dickens was Jesus hanging on the cross then? Why why did he suffer and die? Was that just like step one for the Christian? Is that it? He suffered and died, step one. Now the rest, get after it. Final point, application. You see, Jesus was declaring a salvation which depended entirely on God. Start to finish. The Pharisees were declaring a salvation that depended mostly on them. Jesus was telling people that they were stained and they were spoiled by sin and that we are so sick that we cannot self-medicate. We need a doctor to do everything from here on out for us. That's the message of the cross. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. This is great. If there is one stitch in the celestial garment of our righteousness that we must insert ourselves, then we are lost. I'm going to read it again. If there is one stitch in the celestial garment of our righteousness that we must insert ourselves, then we are lost. Now, do you hear that? Jesus didn't die on the cross to get us started so that we might add to the sum total of our acceptance with God as a result of the good things we do. No, Jesus died upon the cross, bearing all of sin in his body and providing for all who would come by faith and repentance a free and full salvation and a robe of righteousness which is entirely his righteousness. Entirely his righteousness. And the very moment The very moment we set works as a condition with God for our acceptance, we set ourselves up as rivals to his redemptive plan. 
and worse, we do not understand the gospel. Now, does the gospel have a moral component to it? Absolutely. But Jesus Christ at the cross gives us rest from all forms of fear and anxiety and inner strife and self-reliance and dead works. He puts it all away and he gives us the rest that we so desire and he does it in only one place. He does it at the cross. At the cross. Great, great line from a hymn and a quote from John Stott. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to what? Cross I cling. John Stott, to preach salvation by good works is to flatter people and so avoid conflict. All Christian preachers have to face this issue. Either we preach that human beings are rebels against God under his judgment and if left to themselves lost and that Christ crucified who bore their sin and curse is the only available Savior. Or we emphasize human potential and human ability with Christ brought in only to boost them and with no necessity for the cross except to exhibit God's love and inspire us to greater endeavor. Now, one last thing. Either I'm going to read you question number 61 of the Heidelberg Catechism or I'm going to say this. I think I'll say this. Isn't it funny in John's Gospel, chapter 8, when the woman who was, who was caught in adultery, remember everybody had their stones and they were ready to throw the stones and then John has that little line after Jesus says, you without sin cast the first stone. Remember what he said? He said that people began to drop their stones, but who dropped their stones first? the older people. You know why? Because hopefully we've learned through the years, by golly, a lifelong battle with indwelling sin is to be expected. And there's no way in this fallen body I'm going to have complete victory. But there is one, our Lord Jesus Christ, who stands before me continuously. And he is my righteousness. He is my redemption. He is my wisdom, 1 Corinthians 29, and He is my sanctification. That is the glory of the gospel. That is the beauty. No hybrids, only one gospel. Thanks for your attention. Let's pray. Mm. Father, help us to believe in Christ. Help us to believe that in His death we died and that in His resurrection we are raised to new life. Give us the joy Please, in every turn in our life, because I imagine it's easier right now to have the joy, but we're going to leave here. We're going to go to all the different places and we're going to go to all the different uh, spaces of our life. And that is the place where we're tempted to lose the joy of Jesus. So give us the joy and peace that should flow from every reality that the gospel gives us so that we can continue to face this broken world in which we live and especially as we face our last enemy, death. So help us to live in light of a full and free forgiveness. Give us conduct worthy of the gospel and to die with great confidence in the sufficiency of your grace to us in Jesus Christ. Now, Father, may your love, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours both this morning and evermore. For Jesus' sake we pray this. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. If you have a question or two, I'll stay up here and be glad to try to answer that for you.